Hello and welcome to On the Same Wavelength, where we explore how we can make a better world for people living with complex mental health issues. I'm your host, Elise. In this episode, we're focusing on workplaces, whether it's an office setting, hospitality, healthcare, a trade, or working from home, most of us will spend a huge portion of our life at work. Work can impact our mental health, and vice versa, our mental health can obviously impact our work too. Indeed, the National Stigma Report card found that over 77% of participants experienced some level of stigma or discrimination in employment during the last year, and over 80% had stopped themselves from discussing their mental health needs and experiences at work because of stigma. So why is stigma so prolific in workplace settings? And how can we make workplaces more mentally healthy? In this episode, we'll be meeting Peer Ambassador Holly, who will talk about their lived experience in workplace settings. I also chat with Jess English from SANE about some of the work SANE is doing to support people with lived experience in the workforce. Just a quick note that this episode touches on topics including bipolar disorder, eating disorders, borderline personality disorder, suicide and self-harm. And like all our episodes, we talk about stigma and discrimination. So please only listen today if it feels right for you. So my name's Holly. I'm from Sydney, but living in Melbourne for the last five or so years. Um, I'm a physiotherapist um, at a private practice in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Holly was a gymnast for many years. Their interests include audiobooks, crochet and quad ball. In addition to their work as a physio, Holly is a mental health advocate with organisations SANE and Batia. I asked Holly about when they first noticed that something wasn't right in terms of their mental health, but this was a little tricky to pinpoint. Retrospectively, there was some stuff going on in primary school. I was getting bullied quite badly and I know that my mum sent me to the school counsellor. I didn't really know why at the time. In retrospect, that probably means that she noticed something wasn't quite right. I think... When things really started to sort of take off was around the ages of 14 to 15, which which was sort of where my eating disorder started. Um, my mood had sort of been going on since sort of beginning of high school, but sort of when I was about sort of that year eight, year nine was when it was really starting to sort of get quite bad. Holly was trying their best to manage things themselves. I guess... I was naturally always very good at school. Um, and so even though my mental health was pretty terrible, it wasn't really picked up um, because I was still performing well at school. I was still managing to um, meet all these requirements um, when realistically that was part of the problem in terms of I had quite a high drive for perfe- perfectionism and therefore my like studies were not going to be as impacted. Heading into university, Holly was struggling with self-harm and suicidal ideation. In their second or third year of uni, things were at a crisis point. And I sort of got to the point where my the psychologist headspace was like, look, I either call the ambulance for you now or we tell your parents. And that was a pretty big wake-up call. Holly accessed outpatient treatment and then an inpatient stay in hospital. But recovery was not a linear process. The eating disorder really stuck around. Um, Mood was crap, but, like, I didn't really focus on the mood because I was too involved um, with um, anorexia. I was too sort of focused on that. Um, I went over to Europe and 
everything spiralled. I got back and within two weeks I was in hospital um, undergoing treatment for anorexia. Then Holly experienced more challenges after moving from Sydney to Melbourne to complete their postgraduate physio degree. So I've been diagnosed with bipolar. Um, So uh, bipolar 2 to be more sort of exact. In 2020, I had what we now recognise as a quite severe mixed episode um, that landed me in hospital for three months total across two admissions. And when when you've got this mixed episode, I sort of describe it as depression but faster. And you sort of have the symptoms of this hypermanic sort of state where you've got sort of high high levels of arousal. You're highly distressed. You're... Um, but you're, I was I was recklessly spending, um, sort of really agitated, really like unable to sort of sit down and stop, and all of that. But at the same time, having that really deep depression where I was really quite suicidal, self harming. Since that time, things have gotten better. Like I've still had to deal with my mental health, but they've never got. I haven't had to have a hospital admission or even consider one. Um, We've done. We've had to do like we had to do like one slight med change, but it's overall been pretty okay. Holly has a supportive partner and friends who get it and check in with each other. They also have four key players in their treatment team: a GP, psychiatrist, psychologist, and a dietitian who all support their well-being in different ways. In terms of the psychologist, generally working with the sort of cognitive distortions, um, I've also got borderline personality disorder. So um, work a lot with the sort of thought patterns and all of that that comes with um, the disorder. Um, and the um, and also working on the sort of management of mood, management of um, any of the sort of leftover um, eating disorder stuff going on um, and all of that. I and then I see a dietitian to sort of reinf- to sort of to keep keep in touch regarding sort of am I eating enough am I and like my behaviors around food but even though things are pretty good at the moment mental health is still something that Holly needs to navigate in day-to-day life including at work Holly works as a physiotherapist in a private practice They also work in research in the field of physiotherapy and disability. I'm generally more interested in sort of your neurological physiotherapy, so I find the brain fascinating. So I've got a number of patients with um, multiple sclerosis, a couple of that have had strokes, um, a couple with like one or two with Parkinson's, and sort of that neurological side of things. Um, I also see some paediatrics. Um, I was a gymnastics coach for quite a few years as well, so I really like working with kids. I asked Holly about navigating their lived experience in the workplace. It's a really sort of challenging area to sort of navigate because you never, you can never really predict what's going to happen with how or how people are going to respond. Initially, they started in a part-time role, which worked well. I knew I wanted the option to progress to full-time, um, and so was really happy to hear that that was an option um, going forward. Um, yeah, so it was really easy to sort of go with, because without any explanation to start at a 
reduced reduced hours. Um, I didn't have to explain anything. Even though Holly works in a healthcare setting and has been there for some time now, they still don't feel comfortable discussing or disclosing their lived experience explicitly. Even though I'm in healthcare, you still there's still the stigma. You still feel it when there's a patient that comes in that's got some complex mental health um, and they sort of assume they're quite low-functioning. Um, and I don't like the words high-functioning, low-functioning. I have a bit of an issue with that, but I don't have a better word to describe it. But they there is quite a lot of assumptions made and sort of reservations when you hear things like bipolar, schizophrenia, and like I think the workplaces have become quite used to anxiety and depression and that's sort of um, sort of your more common um, mental illness. But then when you get into sort of that more complex side of things where you've got bipolar, you've got schizophrenia, you've got other forms of psychosis, that sort of thing, um, I don't think workplaces are necessarily as responsive. Their workplace's attitude towards mental health has led Holly to be wary of what might happen if they talk about their mental health openly. I just don't know how people are going to react. They might react really well, I don't know, but there's always that fear of, well, if they know that I'm bipolar, are they going to suddenly start treating me differently? Are they going to suddenly think that I'm unfit for for work. In that environment, it's standard practice to have goal setting and risk management procedures. But these practices aren't always designed with employees' mental health in mind. I was a bit sort of, what do we mean by risk management? Like, make sure there's not a trip hazard in the hallway? Like, But um, the example that they gave was looking at work-life balance and um, risk of burnout and all of that. And I think the words risk management are really sort of not appropriate for for that sort of setting. And obviously for me, if I'm going to go by that definition of risk management, um, acknowledging my mental health and treatment and everything, because without managing that, I'm not fit to work. It It wouldn't happen. But how honest can you really be when you're in a workplace culture that doesn't really support honest conversations about mental health? Recovery is often not linear and people's needs can change, as can their ability to meet their goals or KPIs. So say I do disclose, am I suddenly looked at differently? Bipolar is really scary. We don't know much about bipolar. We only really know what we've seen on the TV. So therefore now this is a really scary situation to be in. Like, what do I need to know? When realistically, I'm fully able to work, and many people with bipolar are fully able to work um, and live fairly normal lives um, all in all. And then there's the, if I don't disclose and later on I have a episode and need to take time off work, which is quite frankly quite likely given the sort of progression of bipolar, it tends to you have your episodes and that's probably going to happen whether I'm on medication or not. Um, and that would, bec- and if I don't disclose, that would come quite out of the blue. 
Plus, like we talked about in our episode about healthcare professionals, there's also the question of whether healthcare workers should disclose their mental health history to regulatory bodies. For Holly, it's about weighing up the risks. And so there's that sort of extra layer of fear of, not that I think they would necessarily revoke my licence to practice, but just that whole process of suddenly having to jump through these hoops and get letters being like, of course I'm okay to practice, um, is just would just be a very stressful process. But here's the thing. Having lived experience can absolutely be a strength in the workplace. I've definitely found that my experience with mental health has actually improved my practice. Um, I also get given all the um, patients that come in that sort of are under the NDIS psychosocial um, disability because Duncan knows that I'm going to understand that a whole lot more. I think that in the medical profession, they don't necessarily realise that lived experience is a strength and that you are a clinician and you should never have a like experience in your life. Um, when realistically, as a physio, I've broken two legs. I've dislocated a shoulder. That is lived experience of injury. Why is mental health any different? When making this episode, I was thinking about how workplaces can better support people with complex mental health needs, but also the value of having people with lived experience in the workplace. You would have heard of SANE before. They're Australia's leading organisation for people with complex mental health needs and one of the collaborators on this podcast. Here's Jessica English, who at the time of recording was SANE's head of lived experience. So I work across the organisation to ensure that people with lived experience and their friends, families and carers are involved in the services and programs and decisions that affect them. So that includes working with our programs such as our peer ambassador program um, and our community guides and our peer workers to be able to ensure that our services are delivered and designed by people with a lived experience. Um, I'm also a person with lived experience and it's something that's really important to me. So I'm really proud to work for an organisation where lived experience is at the heart of everything that we do. But not all organisations have a culture that encourages people to talk about lived experience, especially in areas where mental health literacy or understanding is low. And this can have real impacts in the workplace. Certainly what we hear from talking to people with complex mental health concerns and their friends, families and carers is that stigma and discrimination can be a really serious uh, barrier to supporting someone to either stay in employment or to reaccess employment after they might have had periods of time off work. And we certainly hear that for a lot of people who may have experienced complex mental health concerns for an ongoing period of time, it might not just be one workplace where they've had this experience, it might be a cumulative experience as well that can sort of lead to some hesitation in talking about or seeking support um, in, the mental, in the workforce for your mental health. SANE has a peer ambassador program. That is, a group of people who work with SANE. They use their stories to raise awareness, reduce stigma and provide hope. Many have spoken in workplace settings. Programs like the Peer Ambassador Program are so important in breaking down those barriers so that those with complex mental health concerns can have equitable workplaces that are safe. Everyone has a role in making workplaces more mentally healthy. Jess feels that things are trending in the right direction. There is a lot of evidence of um, change that's happening in workplaces towards a more psychologically safe environment. And some ways that workplaces can support staff with lived experience includes things like improving the mental health literacy and understandings of mental health in the workplace. A lot of workplaces are starting to invest in mentally healthy workplace initiatives that really support 
and encourage people to take proactive steps towards wellbeing. And all of those things are really important for staff with lived experience, but also more broadly for the whole organisation. Workplaces that also embed flexible practices are also uh, can be really supportive for those who have lived experience. And I think it just more generally, every person from time to time will need flexibility in their work and practice. And that's particularly important for those who might be living with complex mental health concerns or caring commitments. Reasonable adjustments might involve taking time off for appointments or commitments, changing working hours and so on. It's really about meeting people where they're at. Jess also told me about a new initiative at SANE, a peer guide program, which is building on SANE's history of lived experience-based programs. The program aims to provide a pathway to peer support for people who might be considering a career um, in peer support or those who may have been unemployed or underemployed as a result of the life-changing impacts of mental health concerns. Peer support is about the mutual connection and conversations that happen between people who have a shared experience. In this case, it's about sharing parts of a journey with intention to connect with others and build supportive relationships. We're hoping to give participants the opportunity to access training, peer mentoring and practical experience in peer support that could help them to lead to employment, education or community participation. Programs like this can hopefully help participants' recovery, build social connection and help them achieve their goals. Holly told me about a positive experience with workplace disclosure in the past. This is in the context of their research job. I told my supervisor that, hey, look, we've got a planned hospital admission coming up. Just giving you a heads up, I'm not going to be able to, um, I'm not going to be able to be in the office. And um, she was really supportive. They've developed a really trusting relationship where Holly is able to work flexibly and aligned with their mental health needs. That day, like, she noticed that I was pretty anxious and on edge and not... And once we had our meeting in the morning, she was like, look, if you at any point in time you need to go home and work from home, that's absolutely fine. So she had picked that up, and ever since, she's been really supportive. And when she's asked about increasing hours or whatnot, um, she's always asked and made sure that I consider that I don't have to say yes and to consider my mental health first. Holly would like to see other workplaces have a similar understanding approach. I think that there needs to be, or at least I would like to see, looking after you and your well-being as not as risk management, because it's risk management for the business. It's what are we? what do you need to do to make sure that you can keep turning a profit for our business? That's why it's called risk management. It's not risk management for you. It's risk management for the business. Plus, there's a need for employers and employees to understand more about mental health in the workplace, beyond anxiety and depression. And if there was more knowledge around complex mental health, and not just in the sense of what it is, because I think if I went and asked someone, what do you know about bipolar? They'll probably be able to say a definition of bipolar with some degree of accuracy but then not necessarily understand how that can translate to someone's life. Holly has been working with Sane and Batia to share their story. I've really enjoyed it. It's it's been a way that I can sort of give back in a way, give that information that I might have wanted to have back when I sort of started this whole thing. Holly would like listeners to understand that they can contribute to compassionate workplace cultures. I think that there's no one experience of mental health and that 
the best thing you can do is ask what they need and support what they need and follow through with that because because what one person needs is going to be very different from what another person needs if and i don't think that necessarily knowing a diagnosis or what a person's diagnosis is actually all that relevant um if they want to disclose it to you great but i think creating a culture where understanding that people have mental health issues. People have times in their lives where they're struggling a little bit more. Be they going through a death in the family, be they and be they going through a divorce, whatever. There's going to be different experiences that impact your ability to work. And if they sort of approach it with a "How can we help you?" rather than a disclose exactly your diagnosis, because they're not like your workplace isn't a psychologist, isn't a psychiatrist. They don't know, they're not going to be like, oh, maybe you should go take X medication. Like, that's not their purview. Like, they're here to help support you in the workplace. And I think the best way to support someone in the workplace is ask them, how can we do that? On the Same Wavelength is a collaboration between the University of Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences and SANE, Australia's leading national mental health organisation for people with complex mental health needs, with the support of the Paul Ramsey Foundation. It's hosted by me, Elise Carrot, and edited by Chris Hatsis. Special thanks to SANE Peer Ambassador Holly and Jess English from SANE for their contributions to this episode. If you're interested in learning more about SANE's lived experience initiatives, I've included links in the show notes. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and we wish to pay respects to Elders past and present, and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners. If this podcast has brought up any challenging feelings for you, please consider reaching out to SANE's free counselling support via 1800 187 263 or Lifeline via 13 11 14.